0: Gensel. You'll learn about that. And it's not watered down, but it's not intimidatingly technical. There are no equations in the entire book. And the most delightful part of the book is really seeing the perspective of a young person, in this case, Nico Yunus, uh in conversation with, with an older uh, gentleman who happens to be Cliff Will. getting their perspectives very disparate but united in the and the kind of magic that is einstein and in some sense his unfinished quest still continues and we're still revealing some of the truths of what you would say is maybe his finished quest maybe his finest quest which was general relativity Sit back, enjoy the ride into the impossible today. Please do me a favor, just go down in your podcast uh, catcher wherever you're listening to this, rate the Into the Impossible podcast, give it any kind of rating you desire and uh, leave a review. And please uh, check out their book, Is Einstein Still Right? Welcome to Into the Impossible.
1: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.
0: Welcome everybody to this edition of Pandemic Podcasting as part of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. I am your fearful host, Professor Brian Keating, co-director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And today, it's a treat to have uh, not only two fellow physicists, but uh, two incredibly engaging, interesting, and fascinating authors of a wonderful new book called Is Einstein Still Right? And so we'll be talking about that book Uh, most of today, but I'm also going to take this opportunity because how often do I get a chance to talk to luminaries such as Nico Yunus and Clifford Will, who are my guests today, and I want to talk to them about some topics that I've had uh, been discussing on the Into the Impossible podcast a lot lately, including Einstein. So I've had on, this is now the third podcast just dedicated to Einstein. I have a fourth one coming up soon, hopefully, with uh, uh, Lee Smolin, who's a friend of uh, both of yours, I know, and that will be about his book, uh Einstein's unfinished revolution I think is the name of it so it's funny because Einstein has a book about his war with Professor Matt Stanley. He's got a uh, a book about Is He Still Right? And then I have a, a book called uh, Proving Einstein Right by Professor Jim Gates, who was on the podcast earlier this year. Yep. And uh, so there's a lot of Einstein in the air. But first, let's get to our two guests who are no slouches themselves. First up, Professor Clifford Will, a legend, a, uh, a titan in the field. <clears throat> he is the distinguished professor. Of physics at the university of florida in gainesville florida he's also involved in the institute for fundamental theory the institute for high energy physics and astrophysics And he's written uh, numerous books, given uh, tons of papers. And uh, what I most really respect about Cliff is that he's one of the few people that has done it all. He's done everything from worked on uh, aspects of experiments to test uh, various phenomena, mostly in in gravitational physics, to pure theory, to phenomenology, to data analysis. Uh, this, This is a man who can do it all. Cliff, how are you doing today in the southern wilds of our countries? Oh, very, very well. Of course, it turns out I live
1: on the beach near Saint Petersburg, so uh, so it's a very pleasant surrounding. Um, so yeah, Florida is very nice these days. Uh, we, yours, I'm wearing right? shorts. I'm yeah. wearing shorts all day long. <laughs> Not that people in Michigan and you know New York ought to feel bad, but. That's right.
0: Or Illinois, as the case may be in the case of Professor Anika Yunus, who uh, received his bachelor's degree from Washington University in St. Louis in 2003 and his Ph.D. from Penn State University in 2008. He was at Princeton. He had an Einstein Fellowship. I want to see if that influenced him uh, when he was at MIT and Harvard. And then he was a professor at Montana State University for eight years. And recently, last year, he became a professor at the University of Illinois. uh, And he's the director of the Illinois Center for Advanced Studies of the Universe. That is very intriguing. Nico, how are you? We've known each other for a long time. It's the first time really doing a podcast together. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, you know, I am not. Uh, I don't have an apartment uh, by the beach. Uh, so, you know, well, there's a lake. There's a lake near, nearby. I th- I've heard it's pretty great. Uh. Yes, <laughs> that's correct. But
2: you know, pandemic <laughs> times were pretty much all. Uh, you know, staying home and you know dealing with kids and all of that stuff.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that uh, when we talk about the differences between the two of you. You guys could, are kind of like the uh, the original odd couple when it comes to this uh, young and old, uh, you know, different backgrounds and different uh, different interests. But I want to get to the book first and foremost. I found it very delightful. I consumed it very quickly. Uh, it's an easy read it's it's dense the book is actually r- surprisingly dense you know you pick it up and you think it's like a paperback like um, you know let's say this piece of uh, of n- news junk over here that I wrote uh, but it's uh, it's about eight <laughs> times more dense than that so I want to commend you first of all on the on the printing and the binding of the book. But what I always like to do is ask the authors. Um, unlike the advice to never judge a book by its cover, I always judge books by their covers. I think most people do. Uh, Where did you guys come up with the with the title and uh, how'd you come up with the cover design? It sort of depicts a, a colorized version of of America's uh, or the world's most famous physicist. Title and cover design. How did it go? Either one of you.
1: Well, the the title the title was pretty easy because. Uh, 30 years ago, more than 30, it's pushing 34 years ago, um, I wrote a book called Was Einstein Right?
2: So just Which very was, long, that was in that was the last century.
1: That was, that was in the last century, right, long before Nico was born. Um, and it, it, it did pretty well, but it described the tests of GR up to general relativity up to that point. And so, um, and this in some ways gets to how we decided to write this book, but. Uh, First of all, if you want to sell a book about science, you should have Einstein in the title. So that was that was a given. And then anything with a question mark is good because people wonder, you know, is Einstein right? But now today, because we're, you know, there are these things on the horizon that may make us think about going beyond Einstein, like the acceleration of the universe, the problem of quantum gravity and so on. It's it's a nice question to ask, is he still right? We believe the answer is yes, but still implies that in the future there's still room, possibly, to go beyond Einstein. So that, that part of the title came, you know we, we agreed within a millisecond that that was our basic title.
0: And Nico, what about the uh, cover design, the art? Yeah, room, there was the... a, lot of, uh, a lot of back and forth uh,
2: between Oxford and us about the cover design. The design was, was made by artists at the uh, publishing house and and we considered multiple different alternatives and we looked at other books that have been published in the past 10 years and looked at their covers and wanted to make sure that ours was not too similar to other people's but still like attractive and engaging and you would just catch your eye and be like oh yeah you know that's a book I want to like open <laughs> um, and you know a lot of of, of what we not all of it, but a good chunk of the book uh, deals with gravitational waves because not only because they got the Nobel Prize uh, a few years ago, but also because it was a huge demonstration of Einstein's uh, of the theory's success at predicting predicting something and then spending fifty years to build the machines and you know create the theory or sorry develop the theory and develop the data analysis tools to be able to really verify this prediction of of, of Einstein's. So we thought, you know, well, we should depict gravitational waves somehow on the cover. That's why it's like all sort of undulating. Um, And of course, you know, you had to have the man. (laughs)
0: And the back cover sort of is evocative of a black hole, sort of maybe a merging black hole, merging with the Oxford University Press logo, which, (laughs) uh, you know, surprisingly for a publisher, they made that their black hole much smaller than yours. But um, uh, I want to talk about, you know, the timeliness of the book. So you you mentioned. Essentially, everybody uh, who's won a Nobel Prize, which is not surprising, as the readers of my book, losing the Nobel Prize, will, will recognize the Nobel Prize as sort of a, a catechism or sort of a, a way of a bestowing uh, idolatry or bestowing upon laureates this kind of uh, everlasting um, uh, praise that some say you know, in some cases, the the winner of the Nobel Prize gives prestige to the prize. In other words, some people win the prize and it gives them great prestige. In the case of Einstein, I think Dirac and Feynman, and others uh, sort of conceived that by winning the prize, they almost did a favor for. Uh, for the uh, for, for the Nobel Prize itself. And uh, of course, Einstein looms large. Nico had a fellowship named after him, uh, after um, Einstein, uh, Cliff, just the next year, you're going to win the Einstein Prize of the American Physical Society. Uh, he's, I already, kn- he's already won the Einstein Prize. We just <laughs> have to give it to him. <laughs> That's right. Well, exactly a hundred years ago to the year since Einstein had the same thing happen. He, he won the 2021 Nobel Prize, but he didn't receive it until 2022 so cliff you're in good company um so you, the the biggest changes obviously is that as you guys discuss in the end section where we're going to get to maybe at the end of this discussion you guys have a dialogue uh young and old uh pr- pretty and handsome i, I you guys are both handsome, uh, but the uh, but the point is, uh, you don't guys forget talk, why, don't forget wise, wise, yes, brilliant and wise, yes. Nico is quite wise, uh, but uh, <laughs> but the um, but the changes that you've seen, Cliff. Let's talk about that. Starting as a young graduate student, uh, meeting folks like you talk about Kip Thorne. Uh, you know, f- who is to become a noblest himself. Uh, what, what what, do you attribute this massive uh, increase in testing something, which Einstein himself, correct me if I'm wrong, he never thought any of the gravitational lensing was an oddity. Gravitational waves would never be detected. So he got a lot of things wrong, right?
1: Well, I mean, wrong, but it was right for his time. The technology in his day didn't didn't exist at all to, uh, you know, to, to, to see the, some of the things he calculated. I mean, we now know that gravitational lenses exist. Light can be bent by distant galaxies. But in Einstein's day, it was not known that there were galaxies outside the Milky Way. So, you know, based on what he knew, he, he did the best he could. Right. But I was lucky enough to, to be, be enter Caltech. I was a graduate student of Kip Horn at a time when Astronomical discoveries, like of quasars, pulsars, the cosmic background radiation from the Big Bang, these all took place in the 60s, combined with the new technology of uh, the space program, atomic clocks, high-precision laser tracking of things, all came together right around this time, the 60s and early 70s, to, on the one hand, make general relativity relevant, for astronomy. That just caused a huge amount of interest to grow in the theory, but at the same time provided the kinds of tools that you could use to test it to make sure it was right.
0: And Nico when you got into this game uh, obviously a lot had happened uh, that kept talked about we knew about gravitational lensing we hadn't detected gravitational waves but um, you know, we detected planets around other uh, or you know, stars in the in the galaxy using gravitational or uh, uh, well, using you know, physical effects Doppler ships etc what drew you into this field as a young person in the in the early part of the of this millennium as you keep pointing out the cliff are much o- you know' much older than you guys
2: yeah so for me I grew up in Argentina. I went to school there. I started university there. And so I, I came to the U.S. with a, uh, what we call football scholarship, but it's not your football.
0: It's, you know, the other football. That's um, just, just what 99.7% of the world calls it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, and even though... Um, I had this scholarship I knew uh, ahead of time that I wanted to do physics. So you see, in Argentina, you sort of have to decide what area you want to specialize in when you like register for university. So I knew it was physics. I knew it was theoretical physics. I wasn't quite sure exactly what kind of theoretical physics I wanted to do, but I was always fascinated by sci-fi and in particular by Star Trek. Uh, and I thought, like black holes were really cool, um, androids were really really cool, and being able to like you know understand what happens close to a black hole or close to a neutron star those were like fascinating topics. That's what I wanted to study. But it was not until I got to Washu, where Cliff was a professor, I think he was head of the department at the time, that um, I realized that you know the field that studies all those things within physics was like general relativity, uh, gravitation. And there was this awesome gravitation group at Washua at the time with Professor Waymo Suen and Matt Visser and Cliff. And, you know, it was was perfect. It's like, okay, this is is what I want to do. Um, And, you know, of course, you know, as I was beginning to uh, learn about GR and so on, pretty much everyone, especially in grad school, everyone I talked to, you know, pretty much questioned, why would, you, why would you go into gravitational waves? Nobody's going to detect gravitational waves. We don't even know those exist. GR, what's GR? I mean, we all know GR is right. Why are you wasting your time doing this? You know, come do condensed matter. Or, you know, look at these fascinating materials and these quantum mechanics that, that we can actually measure in the lab, which I thought was super cool. But, you know, I, I to my guns, and it's like, you know, I, I knew as a kid that I wanted to understand black holes, and, you know, I'm just very stubborn, so I'm <laughs> just going to continue trying to study that, and it paid off uh, by some sort of miracle. Uh, you know, when I was a grad student, uh, Pretorius uh, succeeded in uh completing the first numerical simulation of two merging black holes. So you could see how two black holes, uh, how if you evolve the Einstein equations on clusters of supercomputers for many, many weeks, sometimes months, you could see visualizations of these black holes spiraling into each other and colliding and forming a very distorted monster that would just ring down and then settle to a stationary black hole. And you could see all these gravitational waves. And, and that was a huge, break. that was the biggest breakthrough I had seen uh, at, at that time um so so you know that gave me hope and and sure enough you know about 10 years later LIGO would detect uh the first gravitational waves and
0: yeah So, uh, Nico, you're the second Argentinian, at least to my knowledge, that's been on the Into the Impossible podcast. The first, to my knowledge, was Juan Maldicena, uh, who is no slouch when it comes to theoretical physics. And he and I had a wonderful conversation a couple of weeks ago about uh, wormholes and other exotic uh, features of quantum mechanics married with uh, general relativity. And you guys mention this a lot in your book, and I can't resist because I have an interest in in things such as the theories of everything. I want to ask you, um, why why is it important uh, that there be a theory of everything? Uh, And either one of you guys can answer this question, not just Argentinians.
2: Uh, well, so since uh, you talked to Juan, I mean, Juan is amazing. Uh, I think, in fact, I, I have an anecdote, he probably doesn't remember, but uh, I contacted him when I was in Argentina as a high school student, sent him an email I was like, hey, I, I'm this young kid. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think he replied and, and he was super nice. And then I got to meet him um, at the Institute of Advanced Studies when I was a, a postdoc at Princeton. Uh, and he was always super nice to me, incredibly smart. Guy, of course uh, yeah. um, you know so so why do we want a theory a theory of everything it, it, uh, in part it's because we know that every time in the history of physics every time we've unified the, what seemed like disjoint theories the new phenomena emerge new predictions could be made and and sometimes true revolutions uh, in the field uh, would appear, right? So um, Einstein is the classic example. When he unified electromagnetism um, with, uh, you know, the concept of, of classical mechanics and Newtonian gravitation and, and made these theories compatible with each other, then a slew of, of other phenomena and consequences emerged. And so in some sense, the hope is that something like that uh, will also occur that by unifying uh, quantum mechanics with with relativity we'll we'll get a deeper understanding of of the cosmos and new phenomena will will uh, will be predicted that we will be able to observe maybe new technology will have to be built uh, in order to make those measurements and and push engineering forward as well um, so so part of it I think is that. From a physicist's point of view, I think uh, pretty much everyone I know of would, would agree after uh, enough alcohol consumption that uh, we are very deeply dissatisfied with the current status of, of, of things, right? We have two theories that are incredibly successful in the regimes of validity, but that seem to be incompatible. And and that's, that's just not it's not... It, it, it's not fulfilling. <laughs> it just makes you think that there's something else that we're missing. There's a piece of the puzzle. It's like we're trying to put this puzzle together, this jigsaw puzzle, but somebody has removed some of the pieces, (laughs) but you know, there should be a piece right here, but you just can't find it on the table. It's like your little six-year-old just took six or seven pieces away from the table. And now you're going
0: crazy trying to figure out what should go there. Right. Yeah. Uh, But the the hardest puzzles are the ones that have no pictures on the front, right? So Cliff, uh, is there any guarantee that there needs to be a theory of everything. I mean, we'd all like it. It'd be pretty, it'd be beautiful, but uh, we know that many of our desires in life are unfulfilled. Uh, You know, uh, I I wanted to be in a, in a corn maze this weekend with Nico, but I can't do it. So, and in what sense are we, you know, maybe pursuing a fool's errand that there may not be a theory of everything?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's, that is certainly a possibility. I mean, we, this desire, this, this desire for unification is uh, is a human desire, and it's not clear that nature actually follows what humans want. I mean, so so while I respect the desire, and and in some ways I'm fascinated by it, uh, I'm totally open to the, to the idea that it's possible that there is no quantum theory of gravity. There doesn't need to be, um, and that these two. Fundamental theories, quantum mechanics and GR just are always going to be incompatible with each other They'll be friendly and they'll, you know, they'll socially distance and communicate with each other at some level But they're never going to just totally get it together. So I'm, I'm open to that idea Although mm-hmm. I'm certainly respect the people who want to work on it. Yes. To me the big mm-hmm. problem yes. is uh, And since I'm as you mentioned so heavily embedded in experiment in, in the idea of experiments, although I I don't do experiments. Nobody ever allows me in their lab because it's usually a disaster. But the idea of experiment, I view, is so important. And even the practitioners of these unified theories in quantum gravity admit that it's very difficult to conceive of experiments that could actually tell you whether any of these ideas are correct, or which ideas are correct, which ones are incorrect. The experiments are for the most part, out of the realm of what we could conceivably perform. Mm-hmm. And so that, to me, gets to another issue of what is, what is a scientific decision then if you, if you can't really verify something experimentally. So there's that part of it swirling around, too, in the, when you discuss right. theories of everything.
0: But as the great uh, sage physicist Yogi Berra once said, uh, yeah, it's very tough to make predictions, especially about the future. And, you know, Einstein thought that this calculation, I think there was a Mr. Mandel or somebody who came to him asking about a little calculation having to do uh, with bending of light, uh, uh, you know, by gravi- you know, gravitational lensing, what we call weak mm-hmm. lensing nowadays. And he didn't think much of it. I, I love the way that his little note to the editor of Nature, you know, is basically published accepted on site but he also died without you know achieving this unification that we desired and i want to keep going on the theory of everything just for one more minute uh because it's not so often i get to speak to a genius such as yourself nico uh what i what i uh, no, for both of you guys
2: uh, uh, no, no, no,
0: no. Uh, Cl- cliff or nico um the Usually the standard – and I've read about a half a dozen of these books in the last year that say, well, because you know there are singularities at the center of black holes and that the universe began with a singularity, um, <clears throat> there must be a unification of gravity with quantum mechanics because we can't understand things at the microscopic scale, let alone the infinitesimal scale. First of all, is there is there any – evidence for singularities at any point in the universe uh, today, in the deep past? I mean, uh, is there any physical evidence that one could ever get? The, the issue that I have is that a singularity is, is, is like uh, an, infin- it's, it's an infinity. It's something that doesn't exist in the physical world. There's no example of something that's infinite in the physical world. I mean, correct right. me if I'm wrong, except for as Einstein once said, human stupidity, perhaps. But uh, but tell us, uh, you know, why, why is it that that's always pointed to as evidence for the need for uh, quantum theory of gravity, uh, the existence of singularities. I, I claim we don't have any evidence for singularities as yet, physical evidence.
1: All right. I mean, from one point of view, the, the, the one class of singularities that appear inside black holes, we actually can never get evidence of such singularities because they're whatever garbage might come out of that singularity is always hidden inside the event horizon and will never affect the outside world. So to someone who's skeptical of these ideas, that's one answer. They're there, sure, but nobody ever has to worry about them because they're always behind an event horizon.
2: I and mean, you could have evidence, right? I mean, we could just throw Brian into the black hole and let him... Well, oh, that's true. And let him... Let him,
0: you, let him. you can't destroy yeah. infinite amounts of intelligence. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah.
1: But the other other singularity, in some ways, is more significant. I mean, obviously, the universe started from an incredibly state of very high density, very you know, tight compaction of everything. Classical general relativity says that that actually has to be a space-time singularity. Everything really has to be infinite. This, in fact, was one of the many things that Roger Penrose proved along with Stephen Hawking about the. Cosmic singularity, if you believe standard general relativity, it literally must be infinite, no way around it. So, there, I think the argument that if you want to really understand the origin of the universe, you have to bring in quantum mechanics, that argument to me makes a little more, is a little more
0: cogent. Than the one about the singularities inside black holes. Interesting. And Nico, you've worked a lot <clears throat> with CMB probes and, and talk about that. Actually, that's the one bone I wanted to pick with you guys. There's very little mention of my precious B modes and primordial gravitational waves in this book. But Nico, uh, I, I was on purpose. I <laughs> was on purpose. Okay, you're excluding me. I, I knew it. You have an anti-Keating bias, a bicep bias. Um, <clears throat> but I want to know. Uh, when we think about, uh, I've often heard it said, even by my colleagues and friends, uh, who shall remain nameless, that if we detect B-modes, uh, that will be uh, from primordial uh, gravitational waves. That would be evidence of quantum gravity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that is that really, does that have the ring of truth, so to speak, in your opinion, that detection of primordial B-modes is tantamount to uh, to detection of the quantum gravity epoch?
2: Well, right. So so there are these ideas that have been put forth about ways to um, try to construct something close to a quantum theory of gravity, right? So so pretty much everyone has heard of string theory, although if you ask the general public, probably nobody understands what that means. And and other efforts have been made as well uh, to unify general relativity with quantum mechanics, such as, for example, loop quantum gravity, who uh, Lee Smalling, for example, has worked a lot on, and uh, you mentioned, will be on your show uh, later. So um, what a lot of these quantum theories have in common is that they predict that certain um, effects uh, should be present at sufficiently high uh, energies and at sufficiently large curvatures and one of these effects is uh, one that's called uh, or it's, it's, it's labeled party violation um, or party breaking um, and so some people uh so, so we're going to go into like a long mathematical discussion that I don't want to get into about exactly what those uh, how those terms are represented uh, at the level of of the theory. But the bottom line is that some of these uh, quantum gravitational effects should sort of percolate into into observations through um, these these B modes and through a breaking of parity that could be present. In, in the B-modes. So if you could see these B-modes, then you could say something about parity violation in gravity, um, and then that would have to be built on top of Einstein's theory because Einstein's theory doesn't, doesn't describe that amount of parity violation. Uh, and that's important. Like, looking for ways to experimentally prove whether what we think of fundamental symmetries are really true symmetries of nature, That that's super key, right? Um, you know... Things like uh, Lorentz invariance, right, that sort of led Einstein to, to impart to the development of, of, of special relativity and general relativity, uh, looking for violations of that would be revolutionary, right? If you, if you did an experiment and you saw that gravitationally there's a violation of symmetry, that would indicate that there's, in some sense, perhaps a preferred direction uh, or in space-time that, that our theory would have to to deal with. And, and general relativity is not equipped for doing that because it's built on the axioms uh, that, that Einstein postulated. And, and those axioms do not allow for the breakage of that symmetry at the classical level.
0: Even if that breaking is weak, for example, we had I had a conversation with Sean Carroll on Friday on my channel that uh, was revolving around a claimed uh, piece of evidence for uh, cosmic birefringence, so chiral uh, behavior of the electromagnetic vacuum, uh, consistent with adding a Lorentz and parity-breaking um, uh, four-vector to the electromagnetic Lagrangian. In this case, we know it would have to be, you know, incredibly small because we could only detect it via the traversal of photons since the last scattering surface to today or to the Planck satellite. This is a paper by Miami and um, and, uh, and Ichiro Komatsu that Sean and I were talking about that claimed evidence for this effect or, or you know, weak evidence at this level. But- like- uh- but mm-hmm. is it true that if you break Lorentz invariance, we'd have to get rid of uh, GR altogether? What if it's just a tiny bit of, uh, you know, of, of violation like we observe in the weak sector? We don't throw out, the, you know, Maxwell's yeah. equations.
2: Right. And that's a, that's a great point. And I think that's a point that we, we make in the book uh, quite a bit. It, it's about the self-correcting nature of, of science. You know, when you, when you are confronted with an experiment that suggests that your previous theory um, is not quite right, or the predictions of your theory are not quite right. You don't just grab that theory and you throw it in the trash. What rather you do is you try to figure out what that theory is missing, so you can add to that theory this new interaction that would predict the new observation, or at least explain the new observation you've made, and hopefully also predict new phenomena that you can observe. Uh, so at no point, so be, and, and this is essential, right? Because you want to make sure that your new theory with these amendments that you've made is still able to explain and predict all of the other phenomena that you've observed over the past like millennia, right? <laughs> um, so it's not like when we say Einstein's theory of general relativity proved Newton wrong, it's not that Newton's theory is completely invalid. It's not that if we are trying to calculate um, how uh, you know projectile motion or or you know how to launch a satellite, out of Earth so that it's in orbit. It's not that we have to solve the theories of, of the equations of Einstein. I mean we still for the most part use Newtonian mechanics because in the regime where we're doing this experiment, Newtonian mechanics is perfectly valid. And deviations through Newtonian predictions are, are truly minuscule in the solar system. Uh, really hard to measure. Mm. Um, so I don't know, Cliff, I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, in fact, we're careful to say in various parts of the book that when we talk about possibly modifying general relativity, for example, as a possible explanation for the acceleration of the universe, the accelerated expansion of the universe, we talk about it in terms of beyond Einstein rather than, you know, overthrowing. So whatever theory you need to construct has to agree with general relativity in all the realms, and the realms are now vast, over which it's been verified high precision, but then this theory then can do something slightly different in these other regimes, like uh, the, the large-scale cosmological regime.
2: Yeah, and I think I, I, let me just uh, play off of that idea, Cliff, because I think this is also something that, that we mentioned in the book, and it's very important, is the idea of, of a scientific fact. Uh, there, there are certain things uh, in science that are scientific truths, and and we don't so people agree on, this, on, on these concepts. Uh, and different um, communities are not entitled to their own set of, of truths. We all sort of come together and, and decide through experiment whether a particular prediction is correct or not. And if there's a prediction or, or if there's an observation that you know seems to disagree with a prediction of, of a well-known theory that has been tested to, to that day, uh, What we do is we repeat the experiment (laughs) And, and we ask the people that did the first experiment to check that, you know, all the cables have been properly plugged in and that, you know, before you jump and do a press release, and bring bottles of champagne to the creators of the theory. You, you need to make absolutely sure that that what you've observed is is really what you thought you observed, and other people can reproduce that observation.
0: That really That's, hurts. Um, uh, thank yeah. you, <laughs> thank you for sticking it to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it actually reminds me of a quote by none other than Isaac Asimov uh, in a in a uh, piece that he wrote called "The Relativity of Wrong," and you guys mentioned this. Briefly in passing in the book, but he says Isaac Asimov was writing to somebody who really believed the world was flat, and he wrote, uh, when people thought the earth was flat, they were wrong. When people thought the earth was spherical, they were wrong. But if you think that thinking the earth is spherical is just as wrong as thinking the earth is flat. In your view, is wronger than both of them put together, and uh, <laughs> I think that that's uh, you know kind of beautifully uh, apropos of, of uh, some of the things you point out in the in this book. What you guys are doing, what you're talking about, what we physicists are doing, is incredibly hard. We're trying to test something to see if it breaks when we know it's passed tests to the you know tenth decimal place and beyond. In the case of the you know binary pulsar that you guys talk about, uh, but I know Cliff provided uh, me some slides. I want to see Cliff. Are you able to share your screen right now? And we'll, uh, we'll go through your, uh, your slide uh, show, and uh, and then we'll wrap up with some questions about the uh, the dialogue that you guys conducted at the end of the book, which I found so All delightful. Right. So please uh, so, take away the screen. Right. So is
1: it, is it sharing? Yes. Yep. So this is just a brief, brief promo for the book. I'm an unabashed promoter, so I will say that... Uh, uhm, you know, Part of the book covers, you know, it's, we really talk about the kinds of experiments that have been done to verify general relativity. So we talk about famous experiments like the bending of starlight, tested in 1919 by uh, Arthur Stanley Eddington. Uh, that Those were measurements that made Einstein an international celebrity. Um, this bending has been tested many, many times recently, including by an amateur astronomer and during the eclipse, uh, American eclipse of 2017, who used... Off the shelf equipment and did a better job than the astronomers in nineteen nineteen in terms of accuracy. And we talk about how time, the rate of time depends on the uh, where you are in a gravitational field, and so on. But really, a bulk of the book is talks about more recent stuff, like uh, detecting the motions of stars near the black hole at our galactic center, which, was rewarded with the Nobel Prize, part of the Nobel Prize just a few weeks ago. We talk about the uh, black hole shadows uh, produced by the Event Horizon Telescope. Then we turn to gravitational waves, and we really give the full story of how gravitational waves were detected, the ins and outs, the backstory. We explain gravitational waves. We We even show how to convince yourself that the gravitational waves were really detected and then we conclude with this, uh, there's a dialogue between the, the wise person and the young person. Um, the One thing that the book has, thanks to uh, the uh, my artistic collaborator, P. Point, his first name is Power, um, <laughs> we have very simple line drawings. We didn't want to get fancy or exotic, but simple line drawings to try to illustrate, you know, what's going on. We tried to explain the event horizon of a black hole by talking about a swimmer, swimming upstream, before going over Niagara Falls. And we describe how the interferometers work in LIGO. We describe what, it, what the gravitational wave actually was doing as it approached the solar system from the south side of the solar system. Um, things like that. We talk about LIGO, its construction, its development. We describe the first detection, the first waves. This is almost raw data that they uh, that they collected, just filtered in a minimal way, and just looking at the peaks and troughs and how they are the same in the two detectors. Anybody can convince him or herself that this was from outside the solar system. This is a wave detected from somewhere else. You just look at these peaks; they're the same, uh, you know, exactly the same. They're actually about seven milliseconds apart, but that's the the because of the distance between the two detectors. So in, we try our best to use simple language to explain these things. And for example, in the, um, uh, we also describe how uh, as a, one of these stars orbited very close to the black hole at the center of our galaxy, the, the light from the star was reddened because of the, this, this red, redshift effect of Einstein this star was only um, 100 times the Earth-Sun distance from the black hole. And so it was very deep in the heart of that gravity field. And so the light from that star was reddened as it reached us. And that was measured. This, of course, is an artist's rendition, not real (laughs) (laughs) photographs. Um, So and. This, of course, is we spent a fair amount of time discussing the stars at the center of our galaxy, and this is a an animation based on the actual data, showing the star is the center of the, the galaxy. The these moving dots are the actual stars orbiting. This star with the yellow orbit is a star called S2. It has now completed about one and a half orbits around the black hole, and uh, two years ago, in May of 2018, it passed very close to the black hole, and that produced that measurement of the gravitational redshift that you saw. So we describe all these, and of course the book came out just in time for Andrew Ghez and Reinhard Gensel, the leaders of the two teams, to win the Nobel
0: Prize. Of course, they point out in the citation that the word black hole does not get mentioned. It just says there's a compact object.
1: Yeah, I mean, because, I mean, the trouble is to really prove it's a black hole, you have to go into it, but then you can't write a paper <laughs> to, to win your
0: next Nobel Prize. Well, that's when so, graduate, that's what graduate students are for, right, Nico? That's right.
1: But, but I think the idea is to, to prove, you know, that it's such a compact thing that it can't be anything else. But by the way, with things like this orbiting close to the black hole, we can start to prove aspects of the nature of the curved space-time close enough to the black hole that you can really get to a higher level of proving that it has to be a black hole without ever you know, going through the event horizon. So and we so we talk about this future. We're, we're only at the beginning of uh, testing general relativity, testing the nature of black holes with these kinds of uh, incredible observations.
2: And if it smells like a duck, looks like a duck, you don't have to
0: like cook it and
2: taste it. Sure,
0: sure, it's a duck. But if it's an invisible duck made of... Uh, what are black holes made of, actually? I mean, this is a question I get a lot. How do you guys answer that? What You go inside a black hole, what's it made of? It protons, neutrons, croutons?
2: Doesn't Kip Thorne say that it's full of love? <laughs>
0: that's how you get to... He would quote. say that.
1: <laughs> and, and, and movie royalties.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Good one, Will. Cliff, that's great. Um,
2: so black holes are formed by the collapse of matter, right? Uh, uh, this matter can be of all different forms. It could be gas, it could be um, charged particles. And so when all of this material collapses, eventually it's dense enough that an event horizon, uh, like we call it, forms and it dynamically grows to the size uh, it's going to be and, and, and stop growing. Um, and so inside the black hole, You know, if the black hole is isolated, there's nothing else around it. Let's just imagine that there's no interstellar gas or anything else in the universe, just like the black hole after it's formed. Mm -hmm. Then there's really nothing inside of the black hole, except for at the very point of this, like at the center, if it's not rotating, uh, at the singularity, where all of the matter that formed it from a collapse would be located. Mm. And that's where all of the energy, the pressure, and so on are infinite, and where our classical description of of space-time breaks down.
0: What's the most fascinating aspect of GR of Einstein To you guys is it uh, you guys have the first coherent description of the lens theory effect Uh, Maybe you talk about that for a second. Uh, How do you think about that? That's sort of one of the most interesting and it it takes up a good chunk of chapter two or three. I can't remember Mm -hmm. Um, And and it took a large chunk of the US, uh, you know uh, gravitational research budget uh, From 1959 or so to uh, just a few years ago in GP gravity probe B talk about the lens theory effect why is it so important? Uh, why what are we interested in? And uh, couldn't we have saved a lot of money and just given that money to Andrea Ghez and she could have shown it uh, using the images that you just showed?
1: <laughs> I mean, this this experiment is in many ways close to my heart yes. because uh, I wasn't a, I was not directly involved in it, but I chaired a, an external committee on behalf of NASA to oversee aspects of the of the project. But but first, this effect is very important for two reasons. One. It's a prediction of general relativity that literally does not exist in Newtonian theory. I mean, it really is a purely relativistic result, that a rotating body can, can effectively drag space and time around with it and cause forces that, that can affect body simply due to the rotation. This phenomenon simply doesn't exist in in uh, Newtonian theory. But in many ways, the most more important reason the interest that's attached to it is because it undoubtedly plays a role in things like quasars and black holes at the centers of galaxies. You know, people see these images of a bright emission from the center of a galaxy with an enormous jet coming away from the black hole, often in both directions. Um, And then people often ask me, lay people ask, well, how can this stuff be coming out of the black hole? You know, once it's in, can you ever escape? But the point is that stuff going around just outside the black hole swirling of ionized gas, coupled with these effects that cause space-time to, to be dragged around the hole the way batter is dragged by a rotating beater, um, that combination can produce forces on charged particles that actually repel them from the black hole. And many, many models and, th- and theories have been developed to, to account for these jets. And this effect plays an intrinsic role. And so this experiment uh, to try to measure this effect precisely using the rotating Earth as the basis um, was, as you say, conceived in the late 1950s, began development in the roughly late 60s, and ultimately became a, a space program that ran in the early 2000s. So it took a very long time, almost 50 years, cost about $750 million. So it was very expensive to measure one number, and so needless to say, this experiment fell under a lot of criticism. And one of the things we do in our book is try to discuss this issue. You know, how, as a case study, and how, how you make decisions about about experiments and, and projects. How do you weigh cost versus the scientific knowledge gained? How do you deal with different communities? The astronomers are very, wanted to cancel GPV. Physicists were more... Uh, more Positive toward it because it was a fundamental physics experiment. So, how do you balance different different communities when you try to consider priorities? So, we try to, for the lay reader, give a bit of a sense of how how scientists struggle with you know justifying experiments based on cost and importance. Mm-hmm.
0: And Nico, uh, in terms of general relativity's next century what are you looking forward to what what sorts of tests what sorts of observations what sorts of new theories might come about that might uh challenge you and have to do a a, a, you know second edition with uh two question marks or or in chess we use these exclamation points that means brilliancy and uh exclamation point and a and a and a a question mark is a blunder i guess Uh, what, what are you looking forward to in the future in the aspects of relativity itself
2: yeah, I think the future is super bright when it comes to to this field. Uh, we're really at the dawn of, of oh, a lot. That's of... lucky for a young guy like Nico. Ah. <laughs> Everything is great. We're going to do awesome. Just You just wait, Cliff. <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah, so I, I am honestly optimistic about it, especially like now that Uh, There have been so many advances in the field, both uh, in data analysis, in technology, in theory. Um, So I guess uh, there's two main things that I'm really looking forward to and I think are going to be discovered uh, or done very soon. One of them is a little bird told me that at some
0: point B-mode would be discovered. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) that was an exclusive that was uh, my source said you cannot mention that on this on this podcast well,
2: at some point I think we'll got we'll get a better sense of the polarization of the CMB and and I think cosmology is, is quite ripe for new discoveries there are things that we don't fully understand uh, when it comes to to cosmological observations and we attribute the uh, um, adjective dark to them because we don't understand them but that um, so I, I think progress can be made there, and through more observations, uh, that I think is what really going to feed this progress. It can't just be theoretical ideas. We really need guidance from observations. Um, so, 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 so cosmological observations of the CMB, I think, are going to be very interesting. Uh, and then the second thing I think is going to be super interesting is is gravitational waves. And I don't just say that because that's uh, it, it, one of the fields that. Uh, that I identify with, but also because LIGO just essentially turned on, you know, metaphorically speaking, yesterday, right? It's a very new experiment. And it hasn't even reached its design sensitivity, the sensitivity, the, the accuracy that it was built to achieve. Um, I always tell this story that if you, if you, um, you know, build an amplifier, you, you don't, with well, the first time you put it together, you don't crank the volume to fifteen and just let it go right like you you sort of
0: one of my kids does. <laughs>
2: but you don't get these instruments are super expensive they're super complicated you you turn it on slowly and and you 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 fiddle with it and and you increase sensitivity little by little and that's what they've been doing and they've been doing great and the amount of engineering uh, there's a lot of unsung heroes (laughs) and that's also something we try to do in the book to describe all the work that has gone uh into doing creating these experiments and so the bottom line is these instruments should achieve uh, design sensitivity by 2025 or so. So that's like five years from now. And there's already plans to to build the next generation of detectors, either in space through something called Lisa, or through what we call third generation detectors on Earth, uh, which may be very, very large or may be buried underground to, to increase their sensitivity. And estimates right now say that once we reach those third generation detectors with Lisa and uh, so with Lisa in space and with the ground-based ones, we would be able to see the gravitational waves emitted by all sources, all compact binaries in the universe ever period. That's awesome <laughs> to say we can, we can see all of neutron stars that have ever merged <laughs> or will, will ever merge. Um, In the universe and and the amount of astrophysical information that's going to provide, it's really outstanding. From the point of view of tests of GR, there's things that we currently can't um, really test for because the data is just not sensitive enough, it's just not loud enough, or the systems that we've observed are not just right to test this particular effect. But, you know, as we detect millions and tens of millions of sources, uh, and I'm talking now, not in 2025, but more like 2035, 2040. Then, then this test will will really uh, be very, very powerful. Yeah. If there's a deviation in GR in binary mergers, um, and we don't see them by then, then I would say that there aren't any.
1: <laughs> that we're going well- to be able.
0: To- So uh, Barry Barish and Kip Thorne um, have agreed to come on the Into the Impossible podcast after hearing that I got you two guys on the podcast. So I will ask them uh, whatever questions you uh, suggest. So please send them to me. Uh, They'll be coming in the next few weeks. Uh, Hopefully we'll get those out commemorating uh, this amazing epoch that we're in. I've heard it likened to, you know, somebody saying, oh, what good are gravitational waves? We detected black holes as, as being akin to asking, you know, Galileo in 1610. And is this telescope useful for anything besides looking at the moons of Jupiter? Uh, <laughs> as if that wasn't enough. I want to conclude with uh, Galileo, who's my hero and uh and he has uh he has a a lot of uh you know kind of influence on my career and the way i perceive scientists uh and the way that we do our craft and your book concludes with not necessarily an homage to the great maestro as he preferred to be called i actually asked my grad students to call me maestro um but uh but (laughs) uh it concludes with a dialogue of sorts uh there's only two of you not three of you as in the famous dialogo and the discorsi his two final books uh and that galileo wrote which was Written in Platonic style, but uh, I was thinking as I was reading it, Cliff, if you could go back in time uh, and advise a young uh, Mister Will back in the in the '60s when uh, he was first attending graduate school, would you have told him to take the career path that you ended up taking, or are there other things, honestly, that that uh, young Mister Will should be should have been studying besides this field?
1: I mean, from a practical point of view, he. You know, like most of physics, he should have been studying, you know, solid state or condensed matter physics. That's where the jobs are, right? Plastics, I mean, if, you were, yeah. if you were really interested in getting a job, it's the biggest branch of physics. It has the most applications, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it's hard to answer the question with hindsight, but in, in in many ways, how I started out was, I think, how a lot of students start out in their careers. It was just pure luck. I mean, I arrived at Caltech not knowing that Kip Thorne existed because he was so new to the faculty, he was not listed in their brochure that they sent me. Um, I didn't know about general relativity, I didn't learn any of my undergraduate college. It was such a new field, no one taught it. And I just happened to be, you know, advised by my some fellow Canadian students whom I knew I was Canadian at the time, <laughs> to go talk to this new professor. He's kind of weird looking and has a strange name, you know, Kip, what is that, right? Just go talk to him and find out what he's doing. And so I did. And sort of the rest is history, as they say. (laughs) So to me, it was a very contingent thing. I mean, I just really had no idea what I was doing. And I think a lot of students are that way and they kind of fall into a good situation. And then, you know, then they go on from there. But to to me, certainly today, I, I would advise anyone to think about, this is a career because it really has an exciting future. It's a substantial field. It was it was a really tiny field when I started. It was not well respected by other branches, other physicists and astronomers. So now gravitational physics is established. And you know, you should if, you're, if it excites you, you should do it.
0: Very good. And Nico, what are you most excited about and being perplexed by and challenging your students to to think about these days?
2: Well, so I, I I always tell my students, especially the first years that, that approach me or even the undergrads, that they should really think deep and hard about what it is that excites them the most. What uh, wakes them up at night? Uh, or, you know, when they wake up in the morning, they, they look forward to investigating. Where is their passion? And they should always be asking that to themselves. Um, and they should just pursue whatever area of physics uh, if they, you know, like physics, of course, that that uh, really, truly fascinates them because that's what's going to make them the most happy. Uh, whether there's jobs or not, um, you know, I think, and this is my, of course, personal opinion, but it's, and of course, like, I, I am in a position of privilege because, you know, um, I, I have a faculty position <laughs> um, and I, I managed to, to to do what I wanted and get hired for, for, for researching what I want. But but with that said, um, I think you're better off at you know having a job that maybe doesn't pay you as much, but that makes you happy and and it it allows you to to go to work and enjoy what you're doing than having a job that perhaps is is very well paid uh, but that you hate because that's just going to make you unhappy and affect your personal life and. And that's no way to live. Yeah. And if that happens to be relativity, then great. If it happens to be condensed matter, then go for it. If you want to do, uh, if you want to work for a defense contractor, more power to you. Like you need to decide. You are the one that has all the answers.
1: Most of, <laughs> most of my former graduate students remember receiving from me. I did wasn't Nico because he was an undergraduate with me at Washington U. But I. First first undergraduate student comes and wants to work with me, I give them what I call my stern lecture. Way, I even wag my finger at them, saying this is a small field, there are very, very few jobs doing general relativity in the world. I mean, you could be a professor, but hardly any of them, could might be work for NASA, etc. So very few jobs, grant support is very minimal. But if you're willing to accept all that, that after you graduate, you might have to go into something else, computers, whatever it is, teaching, if you're willing to accept all that, then doing a, a PhD in general relativity will be the most fantastic five or six years of your life. <laughs> well, that's good that's, that, that you- That's, that's, my, that's my story. So has, has your lecture changed though in, in, recent, in recent years? It's pretty much the same because still, I mean, it's a gravitational physics is in some ways a big field, but a lot of those jobs are for experimentalists. I mean, yeah. there are a thousand people at LIGO, and two thirds of them are engineers and and uh, you know data analysts, not you know what we would call general relativists. So I think it's it's still it, we're still a small sub branch of physics yeah. with very few practical applications.
0: So I want to conclude with a with a statement from Nico's uh, Institute for. Uh, what is it again, the Institute Illinois Center for Advanced Studies of the Universe, where you talk about the book, Nico, and you say, we keep asking if Einstein was right, not because we think he was wrong, but because that's what physicists do. Even though GR has passed every test we devise, we have yet to, we we have to continue searching for deviations from Einstein's predictions. We know Einstein's theory cannot be the final word since it remains incompatible with quantum mechanics. So he must be missing something. Newton appeared to be right for hundreds of years before observations of Mercury suggested something was amiss, and then Einstein came along. And I want to thank you guys for writing this wonderful book, which will hopefully inspire many, many graduate students to um, to subvert their their free will, as we might say. Uh and, and work for physicists and work with physicists like Cliff Will, uh, the renowned Cliff Will, and the uh and the superstar Nico Yunus. Thank you guys so much for spending your time with the Into the Impossible podcast. And uh let our audience know where can they find you, where can they get this book, etc. It,
1: it's on Amazon.com. Just to look, <laughs> ask the question is Einstein still <laughs> right? And you'll find it. Yeah. It's 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 a Books are sold. Whatever
0: books are sold, that's right. We don't yeah, want to give uh, you know, a monopoly to the no, to no. the giant right. river in uh, in in Nico's home continent. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, Nico Yunus, Professor Yunus, uh, Professor Will. Thank you guys so much. Uh, Cliff, you've been a big influence on me and and my uh, my style and sort of my interest for many many decades. It's been great to meet you finally uh, and have this wonderful occasion. Nico, thank you so much, my friend. Uh, it's a wonderful book. I urge everybody to get a copy of it. Is Einstein Still Right? And uh, and it's available, as they say, wherever books are sold. Thank you both so much. Have a great rest of your day okay. and your week.
1: Thank you, Brian. Great to meet you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.